Greetings, my name, for those of you who don't know me, is Matthew, and uh, as Lynn said, I had the great delight and joy to uh, serve you for um, about 10 months as uh, interim pastor here at Brown's Chapel as you all uh, waited and yearned and longed for and prayed for Pastor Theo. You didn't know his name yet, but that's what you were doing. And is the statement true, good things come to those who wait? It has been a joy to prepare for this week because when Pastor Theo uh, texted me up, texted me, called me up, texted me up, and he said, uh, "Would you consider filling in on the 19th?" He said, "You could come uh, preach whatever you want, or I'm preaching this series through uh, Joshua, and you could uh, take the next one of those." Um, I had the privilege of saying, "Hey, I want to take the next Joshua one and keep doing what you're doing." And I got to go back and listen to uh, what he's been doing and how he's set you up. And what a blessing you all have. Aren't you thankful for how good God is? Um, I sure am. And I want to thank you personally because uh, you all have been so kind and gracious to me, your words and affirmation and encouragements, and even the end of last year around Pastor Appreciation Month. I got some cards in the mail and some words of appreciation that were so uh, dear, and thank you for the way that you expressed that to me. Well, um, <laughs> I just got tickled with Lynn uh, talking about them, Pastor Theo and Randy transitioning back from the Caribbean to this <laughs> wonderful weather we're having here in Indiana. We should be praying extra for them uh, in that. Uh, well, let's review a little bit about where you are. I mean, couldn't be happier. We're in an Old Testament series, and that's what I absolutely love. So uh, we're going to review what you've done getting up to this point and then jump into Joshua chapter 3. In chapter 1, you talked about getting back to the book, getting back to the Word of God as it's given to you, and there's all kinds of pressure around us to get away from the things that God asks us to do or loosen up on those things. That is not the goal. The goal is to say, God, we tie ourselves to these things. We want to be known by these things that you set for and instruct us out of this. Last week, you talked about Rahab and how God redeemed a woman in a very difficult life situation who had made some bad choices. But somehow, this woman Rahab had her eyes open to the things that God was doing and it was beautiful. I love this passage, and I just want to uh, read it for you again, where she is talking with the spies who come into the land, and she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. We're all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you in the Red Sea. There's a little bit of foreshadowing for today. When you left Egypt, and we know what you did to the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing these things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens and the earth below. And somehow, she, in her pagan city, in her pagan state, has her eyes open to what God is doing. She uh, and her family end up being saved through this process and adopted into the family of God. She settles down and gets married and has this son. Anybody know what his name is? Boaz. She has this boy named Boaz. Who knows who Boaz is? He's the guy who redeems Ruth and Naomi and that family. And if you turn in your Bibles to the very first chapter of Matthew, you see this genealogy of Jesus. And there in the genealogy of Jesus... 
is a prostitute who is a daughter of the king. She's no longer defined by that. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, in chapter 3, the story continues for the people of God. They're approaching the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over out of this long exodus. And this is as far as they've ever gotten. Up till now, every day the people had been wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years they'd been wandering in the wilderness. Living the same day over and over again. It kind of reminds me of the movie Groundhog Day. Who's uh, watched that before or knows what I'm talking about? Bill Murray plays a character named Phil Connors, who's a weatherman, who's sent to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania to cover Groundhog Day. And he despises it. He puts on a good show for the camera, but he's really not that nice of a person. And he lives this same terrible day over and over and over and over again. And honestly, if you've watched that movie, as you get to about the two-thirds, three-quarter point, you're kind of like, okay, I'm starting to feel this now. This is rough for me too. (laughs) Finally, it comes to an end. But anyways, they've been living this same life for 40 years. They'd, They'd gotten to a point where Fear had overtaken them, uh, and for a generation, they'd been stuck in the desert because of fear of what was ahead. Before Joshua was leading them, who remembers who the leader of the people was? Yes, and you all have total permission to talk back to me, okay? That's going to work best if you do that. Moses, yes, Moses is the guy, and he sends 12 spies ahead into the land. The spies come back and they say, there are giants, and they have weapons. And we can't fight them. Two of these guys, though, said, no, we can do this. Joshua and this other dude named Caleb, right? But somehow these spies had forgotten that God was leading them through this process, that God had always made a way. And because of their fear, they were stuck for 40 years wandering in the desert, living the same day over and over again. And now finally, it was time to try again. New spies are sent. A new challenge is issued by Joshua, who's now the leader, saying, be strong and courageous. And what the people had been unable to see, a victory in this new land, Joshua saw it. He's seen it for a lifetime. He is one of the two who saw it a generation ago when no one else did. He's got the Ark of the Covenant set up in front of the people. It's the symbol of God's presence with them. And it's traveling ahead of the people about a half a mile in front of them. And the people are following right up to the banks of the Jordan River. And we get to Joshua chapter 3. And I would love it if at this point you all would begin reading with me as we read the Word of God. Joshua 3 verse 5. Let's fill God's house with God's Word. Then Joshua told the people... Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. And I will pause. He's saying to them, get yourselves ready. God is going to do something amazing. Go through these purification rituals that we have. In other words, you do what you can do, what God's asked you to do, and then watch God do what God can do and what He's promised to do. You do what you can do and what He's asked of you, and let him do what he's going to do. Let's read on. In the morning, Joshua said to the priests, lift up the Ark of the Covenant and lead the people across the river. And so they started out and went ahead of the people. The Lord told Joshua, today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. 
they will know that I am with you, just as I was with Moses. Give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, take a few steps into the river and stop there. So Joshua told the Israelites, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Today you will know that the living God is among you. He will surely drive out the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites ahead of you. Look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the Jordan River. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. The priests will carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. As soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream and the river will stand like a wall. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan and the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. It was the harvest season and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. Let's pray together, shall we? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you teach us from your word. And God, we pray that today, as we have read your word and as we dive into this command to move forward and to, to uh, set foot into the water, God, we thank you for the way that you provided. You provided in the past for these people, and today you provide for them again. And let it be a reminder to us of the things that you've called us to do and the promises of the things that you say you will do. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's talk for a moment about the problem of following God. If you've got your bulletins today, then you've got notes. And here's what I love. It cements it in your mind if you just write it down. You can throw your bulletin in the trash on your way out, but you'll remember more today if you fill in these blanks. Okay, It'll help cement it there. The problem of following God is this. There are challenges in front of you that are always too big for you. By the very nature of being a follower of God, it means you face a problem. Challenges that you cannot overcome. Why is this by the very nature of being a follower of God? Well, because if we could get across these challenges on our own strength, why would we need to be followers of God? As believers, there are challenges in front of you and things that God is going to call you to that are bigger than something that you could ever accomplish yourself. There were many challenges ahead of the nation of Israel at this time. Immediately ahead of them was a flooded river, the Jordan River. Now the Jordan River, I've never got to visit it myself. I would delight me to no end if at some point I got to. And I'm just curious, has anybody been to the Jordan River before? Lynn, you're a lucky, lucky man. Good for you. Uh, you're welcome to fund me on a trip to go see it myself. In fact, if you'd like to set up a trip for all of us, we could take this message there and finish this thing uh, there. Okay? Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, this flooded river. Now, the rate of the river, Jordan, has slowed over time. It doesn't run as heavy as it did. I did a little research on the Jordan River to find out. It's estimated that back in this time, it flowed at the rate of 1.3 billion cubic meters per year. Now, that doesn't mean much to us because we can't put it in context. It averaged up to about 12 feet deep. So let me give you a little bit of context. The White River, the West Branch, runs through 
Anderson, and then through uh, where I live, Noblesville and Fishers, Carmel, down through Indianapolis. Who's been to the White River before? Okay, many more of us have been to the White River than have been to the Jordan River. That river, the White River, flows at a rate of about 1.5 billion. So it's slightly bigger than the Jordan would have been. But two weeks ago, uh, for my birthday, we went to this hole-in-the-wall Jamaican restaurant where I had curried goat. It was so wonderful. And on the way, we had to cross over. Oh, it was delicious, Diana. Trust me. It was so good. You'd love it. Spicy, bony, like lots of bones, but you can pick around that and it's good. All right. <laughs> we had to cross over from where we live into Carmel for this uh, restaurant and go across the White River. It had been raining a couple weeks ago. You remember that? And things were very full. It was a raging river. And I got to thinking back on that as I was preparing for this, thinking, oh my goodness. If you asked me to take my family and walk across this thing as it's overflowing its banks, you're asking me to do something pretty foolish, it would seem. The book of Numbers also tells us that in 26 uh, verse 51, that there were 601,730 family men who crossed over the Jordan River in this story. In my mind's eye, when I picture this story, I think of the illustration in the children's Bible. It's got about maybe 15 or 20 people gathered at the bank of the river. And there, you can see a few of them, but that's pretty much it. 601,730 family men. If we expound this out, that means each of these men had a wife. And if you say that there were at least two children in each family, now families were much bigger than that, typically, but if you said at least two children, then you're talking about two and a half million people that you've got to get across this raging river. Do you see why it was a bit of a challenge for them? Two and a half million people. That is the entire population of Chicago that you've got to move through this raging river. Not just them, but the animals that they're traveling with, their tents, their possessions. And it's not just the water, but the scrubby trees and growth around the river. This is a problem. Can your mind's eye just put yourself there in that throng of two and a half million people looking at this raging river in front of you? That was a problem or a challenge that they had in following God's call. Beyond that river, there were more challenges that they would face. There are giants. There are fortified cities. There are superior weapon technologies. People who had learned to do things with metal and alloys that they hadn't quite figured out yet as the nation of Israel. There were problems. Friends, the problem of following God is that the challenge is always too big for us. By the very nature of being a follower of God, we are saying, I am willing to walk up to challenges that are too big for me. Are they ever too big for God, though? No. Let's continue reading the story at verse, uh, where are we, 15b. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed on to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. 
Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on ground, yes, of the riverbed, as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Now, just for a bit of humor here for a moment, again, I always picture about 15, 20 people crossing that day, two and a half million people, uh, and the priests are probably standing out there all day shouldering this Ark of the Covenant, uh, waiting to get the people through. Uh, it kind of tickles me a little bit to think about those guys. I bet they were tired and ready for supper by the end of the day. So here's what I want us to understand. If we accept that the problem of following God is that the challenges are too big for us, then we need to believe that when God leads, He also makes a way. When God leads us, He always makes a way. This passage parallels a story from a generation ago at the Red Sea when Moses was leading the people. God had been teaching them that everything that they needed, He would supply. He'd provided them as they'd gone out of Egypt a pillar of cloud to guide them. I may have told you this story before, but my wife grew up in North Carolina where, you know, you got the southern drawl and slang, and they call the things that you put your head on in bed, they call it a pillar. And so as a child, when she would hear this story about a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, uh, she was imagining a pillow in the sky made out of cloud, uh, of cloud and a pillow made out of fire. That was what she thought. But anyways, no, literal, here I am, follow this thing. He provided them manna when they were hungry, quail when they craved meat, water when they got thirsty. Every time He had done something wondrous among them. When God directs, He also provides a way. So what do we need to do? What is our response? Joshua kind of hinted at it already. In fact, he very clearly hinted at it in verse 5. We need to be sure that we're taking care of what we can take care of. Meaning, we need to get our hearts right. Joshua told them, purify yourselves because tomorrow the Lord's going to do something wonderful among you. God's going to do something amazing among you. Purify yourselves. Get ready so that there's no distraction, so that there's nothing else in the way, so that you can see this wonderful thing that God's going to do. Check the details of your life. These purification rituals were pretty intense. There were things you couldn't eat, things you couldn't do, actions you couldn't take, clothes that needed to be washed. Get everything together as it needs to be so that you can focus fully on what God is doing. That's the boiling it down, the essential of what we're talking about here. And I believe that the same thing would be true of you and me. Get your hearts right as you follow God. Get your hearts right as you follow God and let God do something amazing. There's something that God wants us as believers to do. There's somewhere that God wants us as believers to go. And there are obstacles that God wants us as believers to surmount, but that they seem insurmountable. Your job isn't to overcome them. God didn't say, go build a dam up at the town of Adam. God didn't say, you know, uh, figure out a way to drain this thing. God said, get your hearts right and let me do the rest. He will guide us through the rest. So how's your heart? Is there something there that needs to be set right? The job for today isn't to build the dam and stop the water. The job for today is to check our hearts. And I want to be very vulnerable with you right now because those of us 
who lead you as your pastors, we have a problem with this sometimes. It is very easy for us to fall into a trap. I have a problem with this. I get into a mode of thinking that it is my job to save people. That it is my job to get the crazy situations in the lives of people straightened out. That it's my job to redeem people. And I've worked myself in the past into depression trying to do it. I've burned out in discouragement because I'm trying to do what God's supposed to be doing. When really the focus for me should be what's going on in my heart. Am I doing the things that God has asked me to do and letting God do the things that he's promised to do? It's not my job to redeem someone. That's Jesus' job. It's my job to say, hey, have you heard about this guy who's redeemed you? Who wants to redeem you? My job is to check my heart. My job is to pray the prayer that David so beautifully prays. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That's my job. And it's God's job to work the rest. You may have been in that same place before too where you start getting into a way of thinking in your family's life, there might be somebody who's far from the Lord. And you know what their ultimate realities are. And you might get caught up in thinking, I have to do this to save them. No. Check your heart. Follow God obediently. Go where He asks you to do. Walk up to the rivers that He asks you to walk up to. And let God take care of what God can do. This story also teaches us that there are times when we need to be willing to get our feet wet. Again, this is so similar to a story a generation ago at the Red Sea. We've compared the similarities as God made a way through water, as He caused dry ground to appear through water. We've compared them, but now let's contrast. A family friend recently got Deborah a subscription to Highlights Magazine, the high five, the five-year-old version. And just about every other page in that magazine is a look at these two pictures and find the things that are different. <laughs> and what's funny is she has a really hard time with it. And for me, it's like, oh, God, there, 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 yes. Okay, here's all the differences. And she like will stare at it for a long time. Uh, and anyway, so let's contrast. Let's find, compare, spot the differences here. Circle the things that are different. Back in Exodus, we read this. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Then we move down a little bit further and it says, Then Moses raised his hand over the sea and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. So now as we just reviewed that story and we see what's going on here with Joshua, can you spot the difference? In one story, the instruction is, stand still and watch. In this story with Joshua, the instruction is put your feet into the water. Now, I don't know about you and where you are, but I prefer 
stand still and watch. I don't know what your preference is, but for me, it's stand still and watch. Let me stand still and just kind of see what God is doing. It's a whole lot harder when God says, go start walking through this river that's not dammed up yet, where the dry ground hasn't appeared yet. I want to stand still and watch. But at some point in our life, in our following God, we need a step into the raging river kind of faith. We need to go into the place where it's overflowing its banks, where it doesn't make any sense, but this is what I've called you to do. Go get in. Not because we're fool-headed and think that we can overcome this challenge on our own, but rather because we have sanctified our hearts, we've prepared ourselves, and we're tuned in to what God is asking us to do. When's the last time you heard the voice of God calling you to do something? If it's been a minute... It might be time to purify that heart and get close to what he's asking and what he's calling. When everything looks like we could get swept away, are we willing to go fully trusting that God will take care of us and do the rest? We have a great story in our history as Wesleyans. Browns Chapel Wesleyan Church. And I, I can't remember what I've told you all and what I have. So this might be old news that I've already repeated a bunch of times to you. But here we go. You're going to hear it again. Because it's important that we remember these things. There's this guy named Adam Crooks in our history. He's a Wesleyan Methodist young pastor. The Wesleyan Methodist Church, as it was started, was organized in the north. Primarily in New York where a group of Methodist ministers said, we cannot not stay silent on this issue of slavery. This needs to end. But the denomination was unwilling. They were kind of straddling the fence there. And so these guys formed up a group and they said, we're going to start our own denomination. We're going to call ourselves Wesleyan Methodists. The ones who would do what John Wesley would have done if he were in this situation. They put out a newspaper that they published weekly called The True Wesleyan. <laughs> it's kind of like a thumb your nose at that, because <laughs> the, that means there's a false Wesleyan out there somewhere, and they knew it. So they start this church, and they organize, and some of the things that they were doing then, we're still doing now. They would have church conferences. They would have like the district conference where the pastors and lay leaders in the church would gather together. Who's been to a district conference or represented this church in that way. Yeah, so you know what we're talking about. You've been there. They'd have these conferences and people would be there. Well, in 1847, at the church conference, somebody was up front who had received a letter from a group of people in North Carolina. And they read this letter to the people, the pastors and lay leaders who were gathered there for this conference. The letter said, we are like you. Our hearts are like your hearts. We want to represent what you stand for here in North Carolina, below the Mason-Dixon line. We just need a pastor. Would you send us someone to be our pastor? And in that group of pastors and lay leaders, there's this young guy, 20-something years old. I can say that because I turned 35 a couple weeks ago. So he's just a young kid, you know. Probably didn't know what he was up to. 20-something green pastor named Adam Crooks is there. 
And he's beginning to sense in his heart that God is calling him to put his feet into a raging river. The other people who were there in that room documented the moment, saying that when this young man, Adam, stood up, that he was as white as a sheet. And he said to the group of people, I will go. By the grace of God and with his help, I will go to North Carolina. This guy packed up and headed down south to this group of people, this small group of people that was starting out this church there. He arrived in North Carolina in October of 1847 and began an evangelistic and church organizing ministry. They built this little log church nearby in Alamance County and named it Freedom's, Freedom's Hill. The opponents cursed it and called it something that I can't repeat today. By the end of Crooks' first year, first year, he had established eight congregations in North Carolina and Virginia and had a total of 140 members. They ran an underground railroad stop out of this church. There's this little movie uh, that I want us to watch about Freedom Soul Church, just so you can get a sense of it. <clears throat> In October 1847, Wesleyan Methodist minister who loved God and hated slavery crossed the Mason-Dixon line to pastor 40 Southern Christians who had taken the same courageous stands in the turbulent days before the Civil War. The result was Freedom's Hill, the first Wesleyan Methodist meeting house in the South. Was originally situated in a small town called Snow Camp in Alamance County, North Carolina. Wesleyans went there because there were a lot of Quakers in the area and Quakers were anti-slavery as well. Wesleyans needed all the friends they could get. The chapel that they built was a simple one, but it was very sturdy. 27 feet by 36 was built on a foundation of field stones, no mortar, Few nails, they, uh, they fastened wood together with pegs, uh, not only in the logs that built the church, but in the pews themselves. They were all handmade. And they worked through the winter months of 1847-48 and dedicated the church in March of 1848. Wesleyans were abolitionists. That meant they called for an immediate end to slavery. Above the Mason-Dixon line, that made them radicals. Below the Mason-Dixon line, it made them targets. The church was fired on to frighten away the worshipers, but they kept coming, entering through a door marked by bullet holes. Pastor, a young man 23 years of age named Adam Crooks, was poisoned but survived. Ambushes were laid for him, but they failed. He was arrested for preaching against slavery, and when he was, he asked his jailer, if Jesus were here, would you arrest him too? And the jailer's reply was, if he was an abolitionist, we probably would. One layman in the church, a white man, McKaja McPherson, was lynched for his anti-slavery views. Miraculously, he also survived. Meanwhile, despite all the opposition and all the persecution, Freedom's Hill continued to be active on the Underground Railroad. A hollow tree near the church provided a hiding place for an escaped slave until nightfall made it possible to connect with the next safe house on his road north. 
Freedoms Hill was on the southern end of that pipeline we call the Underground Railroad. It's the most dangerous end. But many other Wesleyan churches in Indiana and Ohio and New York were also stations on the Underground Railroad. Freedoms Hill weathered its opposition and the congregation continued to worship there for almost a century. When a new and a more comfortable sanctuary was built nearby, the old church was abandoned. But by the providence of God, it was not destroyed. It was later moved to the campus of Southern Wesleyan University, where it was painstakingly restored and rededicated in 2001. Here it stands as a reminder, a reminder of the moral courage of those who went before us and a challenge to follow in their footsteps. I love that story. It's a story that we got to keep telling ourselves. And my question again for you today is, are you willing to get your feet wet? <laughs> I've said this before to you, but I'll ask it again. Who remembers this great promise of Jesus? In this life, you will have. In this life, you will have. It's a promise. In this life, you will face trouble. In this life, you'll walk up to an overflowing Jordan River and God's going to ask you, what are you going to do? It might be to stand up courageously amongst your peers and talk about who God is. It might be voicing something that's hidden, that needs to be made known. Are you willing to put your toes into the water because God called you to and let God take care of the rest? In this life, you will have trouble. But then there's another great promise at the end of that verse. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart because I have overcome. I want to beg Pastor Theo's apology and I want to bleed over just a touch into chapter 4. Once they've come through the river, they do something that is so important on the other side. They set up a monument. They pick 12 stones up from the middle of the river, big water smooth stones that are placed together, fortified there outside of the river. It would be obvious to anyone who passed by that this was not a natural rock formation. These had been put there intentionally. They're intended to cause the onlooker to say, what's this pile of stones about? Exactly. It's a reminder. And the instruction was, when you pass by these rocks, Remember what God did for you. Remember how He made the way. Remember how He fought your battle. Remember how He held up the water. And I don't know what the monumental moments in your life are, but this is good wisdom. If you're facing something ahead of you, one of the best things you can do is look behind you and see how God has brought you to this point. Do something that causes you to remember them. Talk about them. It's absolutely wild to me in this whole story of Joshua that the people of God are the ones who are jaded about God's presence actually being with them. It's the people of God, the ones who he's got this pillar of fire and pillar of cloud with, the ones who he's sent manna from heaven, who are the ones who are like, oh, I don't know if he's really with us. And it's the people who are far from God, like Rahab or a couple chapters later in Joshua, these other dudes who show up, who are the ones who have heard about all that God is doing and saying, hey, we want in on this action. Why is it that the people of God are the ones who get jaded? What's it about? Why are we prone to forget? 
Go think through something that God has brought you through and thank Him for it. Remember it so that you have the courage to cross what's in front of you. To know that God can do it again. Both my maternal great-grandparents came to know Jesus in the same neighborhood through the same church. One through a tent service and one through the witness of a lady in the church who would go door to door and just knock on the doors and tell people about God. That little community was inside the loop there in Indianapolis. And believe me, since I've had the opportunity to be here in this area, I have traveled to those homes that they used to live in as children and to the site of where that little tent was set up for that tent meeting to put myself in that place and remember what God has done. How He made a way for us. How He brought us through. It wasn't what I did. It wasn't what they did. It's what God did for them and how He brought them out of the miry clay and how He set their feet on a rock to stay. Let's wrap up. I don't know where God might be leading you. I don't know what's ahead for you personally in your family or at school or wherever you may find yourself. I don't know what raging river God might be calling you to camp out at and then to put your feet into. Here's what I know. God is asking you to step in. There's a reason that you should have courage. Take courage. Start taking some steps. Take a look at your heart. Work on what you can work on. Saying, God, is everything right here? And then let God work on what he can work on. And I invite Rhonda and our uh, team to come up as we close out this morning. There's a... <laughs> I don't know if you'd call it a worship song or a ballad or what you'd call it from the 90s. I don't know what we called songs back then. But uh, if you were a believer in the 90s, uh, in the early 90s, you know this song. Um, it's called God Will Make a Way. We're going to sing it together a couple times as our closing, and then I want to pray for you. The words go, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. God works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side with love and strength for each new day. He will make a way. He will make a way. Would you stand with us and let's sing it together?